Uh, welcome to the Saturate Podcast. This is Duke Rivard, Executive Director of Saturate and the Soma Family of Churches. I'm excited about this episode with Dawson Jones. Uh, we have the opportunity to talk about leading the church post-crisis. So uh, Dawson is the lead pastor at Soma Tacoma in Tacoma, Washington, who uh, in November 2019 experienced the death of their lead pastor. And as uh, man, Randy Sheets, he was a really good friend of mine, a really good friend of Jeff Vanderstelt and so many other leaders uh, within Soma, a really great friend to Dawson. And so uh, his death was a significant crisis for the church. And so in this episode, we just kind of recap what God has done with Soma Tacoma uh, since that time, uh, the ways that uh, you know the church has gained new clarity, um, has seen God's faithfulness, uh, really even the surprising way in which new leaders have emerged and new unity has, has been created in the church and a new commitment to Jesus and his mission. And so all of us are walking through COVID and we're walking through a kind of crisis. And uh, this, I think this episode will encourage you about how God uses crisis. Um, yes, yes, things get squeezed. There's challenges. There are things that we would love to uh, see, you know, change or to be done with. And yet uh, we do see God's faithful hand uh, in his church through the hardest of times. And so uh, without any further ado, I would love to just invite you to listen in to the great conversation with Dawson Jones on leading your church post-crisis. Hello, Saturate audience. My name is Duke Rivard. I'm the executive director of the Soma Family of Churches and Saturate. And today I'm excited to be joined by my friend and co-labor in the gospel, Dawson Jones. Dawson has been around Soma Saturate for quite a long time. He was an immersed student, which meant he was doing, gosh, like even college level training with us. He was a Soma Sending resident. And even before that, he grew up as a missionary kid in Slovakia. He went back to Slovakia and did ministry for some years and is now uh, the lead pastor of Soma Tacoma, which is really the birthplace and ground zero for the Soma family of churches. And so uh, just really excited to, to spend time with Dawson. We're going to be talking about a really important topic, which is leading the church post-crisis. And uh, Dawson, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Duke. It's good to be with you. Yeah, well, just just for those who don't know you, maybe give us just a quick overview. You you know, tell us about Laurel, your family. Uh, fill in any more bio details on you, just so we can get acquainted. Yeah, you you covered quite a bit in just a few sentences, but yeah, we uh, my wife and I, Laurel, uh, we have three kids: Vivian, Lucia, and Augustine. And um, we just moved into our more permanent home here in Tacoma after really about 17 months, I think, of being nomadic. Um, and yeah, enjoying enjoying Tacoma, which does feel like home because we lived here for for a few years before that. Um, and settling in. I just went to, uh, uh, I just found a bunch of bricks on offer up. Uh, and last night was loading them into my truck and there was something symbolic of getting some landscaping, um, gear in place and kind of cultivating our, our new home. It's been quite a transition, quite a, quite a few transitions for the last few years. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Dawson. Well, we're going to be talking about, I think, a topic that by God's providence, you actually have just a ton of lived experience in now. And I, I know this wasn't something that you planned or anyone planned, but yet you found yourself uh, in a in a significant crisis. Uh, just as we frame this, I, I just want to go with a working definition. I think crisis is a familiar term. I think most people know what it means. I think we all dread it. I think we all wish it were not a part of life, and yet it is. In the fall, uh, we, we all encounter periods or events that are destabilizing that usually represent what we call a negative change. <laughs> uh, and maybe that's the best, simplest way to define a crisis. It's a, a really negative change. Um as we, we think through what it what it's like to encounter in crisis, I think Walter Brugman's message to the Psalms, he, he talks about the spiritual life as three movements from orientation, when everything's kind of working right, uh, maybe even with God or with your ministry, and then we from there move into a, a period of disorientation, which is about vulnerability and frustration and loss and unexpected unexpected situations or circumstances. And then God in his grace, you know, moves us into a new orientation, hopefully new depth, new uh, character, new trust for him, a new fruit uh, downstream. And so uh, that's a, that's a movement. But as we even get into that, I would love to hear from you because you stepped into a situation in Selma Tacoma that could only be described of as disorientation. Uh, maybe, maybe fill the audience in for those who are not familiar with what happened. Uh, give us the general story of, of what went on with Selma Tacoma and, and kind of how you entered in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Soma Tacoma story has multiple chapters, uh, but uh, Randy Sheets um, was was leading Soma Tacoma for many years. Randy was a dear, dear friend, one of my closest friends, um, and uh, he and he and Lisa even just a few months before he passed, they'd come over for they came over to Europe for a whole ten days, left their four kids um, in the states. That's the last time I spent time with him. So he's a dear friend, but he committed suicide in November of of 2019, and the church um, was obviously immediately in shock. And I know Duke, you were one of the first to arrive. The, just within, I don't know, it seemed like within 24 hours or so, and so that first that first week was just was was ICU. I, I got there in time for the uh, memorial, and um, and then um, went back to Europe. And I think there was like a couple months of of really like the ICU period after that that I was in Europe for. But then uh, my wife Laurel and I needed to t- to come back to the States for a six month period at some point, And we decided to do that in the wake of Randy's suicide and, um, came here for six months and then through honestly, even personal crisis and a reorienting of our, our story and calling, um, are now here permanently. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that's a, yeah, it's such a heavy story. We'll, we'll work through, I'm sure I had elements of it, you know, as we go here, but, uh, just initially, Dawson, I would love just to hear from you. What what were just some initial learnings uh, that mm-hmm. you encountered or experienced as you sort of have worked through that crisis this past year? Yeah, um, well, I think one of the, the biggest things I, I've learned is that 
<laughs> it sounds funny to, to say it is um, we just, we really don't like it. We really don't like that disorientation phase as, um, as you kind of put the Brueggemann framework on that. We want to get out of it. And I think um, the temptation for us um, as Jesus followers who recognize God's providential plan is to try to shortcut getting out of that disorientation phase. And it's really hard to be where God has you. Uh, it's interesting, you know, we're recording this just right after Easter, and these last two Easter's have really framed this 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 year that for all of us, uh, not just Soma Tacoma, has been disorienting. And I think that um, uh, that 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 Easter um, really the Easter events from Good Friday to, to Sunday, that is, that is the, um, that, that shape of, of disorienting and then, and the new hope. And it's so, it's so hard for us to stay in a Saturday reality, you know, that in between the Good Friday and the, the, the Sunday, we're just eager to get to Easter Sunday. And, uh, I, uh, this year, even, even um, yeah, this whole year, the 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 Emmaus story of of these two guys who are walking on Easter Sunday. So Jesus has risen, um, but they're still living in the reality of Saturday. Uh, that's really that's really stuck with me this this last year it's interesting they actually encounter the risen jesus and you'd think there'd be this like big reveal like ta-da look i'm alive and instead he walks kind of incognito next to them and i think there's something profoundly significant there that he wanted to walk with them in their saturday reality and Mm -hmm. uh the whole conclusion of that story is once once they do realize it's him they're um there at the end of Luke 24, their statement is, it's not only, wow, he's alive. They say, oh, how our hearts burned as we walked with him. And I think that that's been my biggest, honestly, struggle, but also just the um, the invitation of recognizing that Jesus can do deep heart work Um in the crisis, not in spite of the crisis, but really um, because of the crisis, kind of the kind of work that can only happen in this kind of this kind of crisis. So, I, I think for for us, like we are learning what it means to be Easter shaped people, and by, by what I mean by that is like like that Good Friday to Saturday to Sunday. That's just the no, that's not this that's the normal Christian life. Right, Paul Miller. I know you, you, you and I enjoy Paul Miller's a praying life and other works by him. But he he talks about this J curve reality, mm-hmm. and we really like Jesus's J curve, right? The Easter J curve, but we don't like our own. And so, um, yeah, that's that's just the normal Christian life. Crisis precedes renewal, right? Um, at the same time, though, it's not it's not a given. It can pre- precede renewal. Um, um, yeah, and we just often want to shortcut and get out. So that's that's I think that's what I've learned. Maybe just what it's what it's done to me though is I'm just a lot more present. Um, I think um, with people, re- learning what it means to be present with with the Father. I'm, I'm recognizing I'm a lot more present um, with my kids. So it's done a lot of things to me. I'll probably reflect on later, but that would be my biggest like kind of framing of of being like 
Easter-shaped people, crisis crisis shapes us. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that is huge. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the tactical elements of leading through a crisis, because uh, yeah, the the spiritual formation and what God's going to do through it are you know, really, really important. And, and yet some leaders are sitting there going, man, what do you do? I mean, really, what do you do? Um, you're, 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 yeah, there's a theology of hope about what God might do through you, but as you land on the ground and maybe we could talk through this, just Mm -hmm. how do you, how do you lead a church who's who's just lost their pastor in that way? Uh, what are some of the elements of, of walking with people, daily, yeah. weekly into a situation that, you know, that devastating. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it really is, you know, unique. Uh, it, there's different kind of crises. You kind of have that developing ongoing crisis, right? That is the pandemic. And then you have this acute crisis, which could be anything from a hurricane to, um, and, and then suicide is a very unique acute crisis, you know, especially when the suicide of a, of a lead, of a lead pastor. So, um, there's some of it's just practicing transparent communication, like tell people what you know, and also tell them what you don't know and tell them that you'll tell them more when you know more. And you just kind of keep doing that. I think it's really, that's part of the, that's why I framed it in the, this, this Saturday moment is, is just recognizing it's, um, it's hard for leaders, visionary leaders, especially just to step into that kind of crisis and not, and not present like, here's, here's where we're, here's, here's the solution. Um, but to really be honest with, with the moment, I think another just really practical thing is just, to to create, more frequent but shorter touch points with people mm-hmm. and more dialogue than one-way communication. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you often might come to a meeting think, thinking people need to hear this and, and, and just really important to be listening to where people, where people are, uh, where people are at. Yeah. No, that's, that's so key. One of the things I noticed in Tacoma I was on the ground for maybe 10 days right after Randy took his life and Justin Kuravakal, I remember stepping, stepped in and did a daily email, you know, every single day with everyone in the church. And, and I remember a couple of people, and then there were also lots of other communications, but I remember someone in particular that hadn't heard from anybody in three days and it was like they had been neglected for three months. You know, like they're emotionally, they were like, nobody's telling me anything. You know what I mean? And that, that was just so, uh, I had compassion for them, realizing, man, they really are in an hour to hour. I mean, it's almost like that that old show 24. I don't know if you ever watched 24 back in the day. Um, I didn't. But yeah, whole, whole whole seasons happened um, over a 24-hour period, and, right. and it felt a little bit like that, where every hour uh, was so heavy and momentous and disorienting that three days was, yeah, was something like three months or three years for, yeah. for people. Um, so, yeah, that frequent communication was just something that I think is... Yeah, shouldn't be missed, and it, it, it becomes a kind of pastoral care, even yeah. if what you're sharing isn't particularly um, new or profound. It's just that 
those touches are happening and people are getting uh, frequent um, interaction and yeah. opportunity, uh, you know, you can't, yeah, to, to process or, to, or at least to hear something from someone. Um, yeah. Yeah. And the elders of Soma Federal Way did a phenomenal job of creating multiple pathways for that. Um, uh, Soma Tacoma did not have any elders at the point at, at um, at the moment when Randy committed suicide. And so Justin was providing this frequent, like proactive, outgoing communication. And then another elder, Jeff Wall, just sat in the office all day waiting for those who needed to come. And mm-hmm. uh, so there was, there, were, and then there was another, um, there was like scheduled, you know, group, counselings. Um, so they're just clear communication. People like are disoriented. Like they, they, they don't know where they are and just mm-hmm. like have, you know, just like, like when you're in a, this, this just came to mind, you know, you're in a giant amusement park and you have no idea, like, how did I get here? Just having really clear signs that say you are here and you can go mm-hmm. here. Um, that, that sounds really simple and obvious, but in, you know, those first few weeks post-crisis, um, it's incredibly helpful, yeah, to help people find yeah. where they are. Yeah, that was so huge. I, I Actually, as you're saying, I'm remembering the grief counselors who sort of reached out on their own, who happened to be experts in the in Tacoma with first responders, and they'd help, you know, firemen and police officers who come upon horrible situations um, and help them debrief and process. They, they sort of knew what we needed more than we need, we knew. And they, they just sort of emerged and said, Hey, is there anything we can do to help? And we quickly realized uh, their professional expertise, their wisdom and care was so huge in, in doing that. And so I may even add to that, just man, it like, who else can help, you know, and who are the helpers that are, that are already in the city and, and by God's grace, those people um, often emerge in a crisis and, and God brings them and brings the resource through them. But I was so impressed with those, those men uh, and, and even the simplicity of the space that they held for people, which looked like underfunctioning, which was act, you know, absolutely uh, wise and, and um, it was just so they were so good at what they did. <laughs> they, they, were, they were phenomenal, and I've I've just I've studied this a lot, and they were phenomenal. They'd done it before, and you sometimes watch people like this, or you know maybe like chaplains um, who are you know caring for families who just lost a family member, and you sometimes watch them, and it doesn't look like they're doing anything, <laughs> but because. Um, because they're just providing space, like you said, but that's incredibly hard work, and pastors know that. Like it's, in, it is exhausting to not offer solutions, but to create <laughs> space for people to grieve. And they did a phenomenal job. And like you said, people just kind of emerged from all corners of Tacoma to to help with that. And we needed that. I think pastor for a pastor to think that he's supposed to provide that that's that's just out of his. Um, he, he's not he's not trained for that. And, uh, and in our situation, we all needed to be led in that first. We needed to be yep. experiencing that. Yeah. Well, that was part of it. And this is, this is relevant for COVID. I think it's relevant for some cri- acute crises where what do you do when the helpers are all leveled? Mm-hmm. You know, 
So let's say Hurricane Harvey or whatever, it's like all of the helpers' houses have also been destroyed. You know, and so that's that's what I noticed with Soma Tacoma. The whole staff yeah. was deeply impacted and they were not in any position to help anyone else. Yep. And so what do you do when the helpers are gone? It's like, okay, God, who are the new helpers? Who's the next layer of, de- of defense, so to speak? Um, and God did that. You mentioned Soma Federal Way. You mentioned these grief counselors, uh, the other churches in the region. Um, yeah, maybe talk a little bit about how you saw the whole body activated to come and bring resource, even for the normal leadership that really wasn't able to function at that time. Yeah. Um, I mean, to be honest, I'm just, I just, and even like in this moment, as you're recapping that, just incredibly impressed and thankful because that's not something, um, that's just God's grace. It's nothing you can really plan for. Um, maybe there is the reality of just being a part of a, of a family. So I'm a family. Um, even Duke, just you arriving and kind of recognizing that you needed to play a role in that moment that no one else was equipped to, to, to play. That was huge. Just orienting people in that. But then I had, you know, when I got here for the second time, I had a, a church pastor, local church guy here. He's been, he said, I've been a pastor for 20 years and I've never seen the church be the church um, like it was in those, those weeks and first months after Randy passed. We just had a, uh, Soma Tacoma has been a generous church and has given a lot, you know, to the city and, and even to even beyond. And, um, we just, so many churches were coming and, and literally like, like we almost had this, um, uh, this external staff, like staff members of other churches doing staff work for Soma Tacoma, uh, executive work. Um, it was, it was really, it was really beautiful. And there was even this kind of coming out of this, like this longing, um, again, maybe that how our hearts burned during that time as Jesus was caring for us in a really unique way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really was the darkest thing I've ever seen and one of the brightest things I've ever seen at the same time, which was so, I mean, it was stark and there was, uh, man, there was spiritual warfare. I can't tell you the number of people that were being accused by the enemy Mm -hmm. in different ways around that, uh, that the amount of, um, yeah, I just felt like the angels and demons were fighting right over the head of Soma Tacoma the whole time. And and yet, as you're saying it, I'm just thinking what it was the principle <laughs> someone could take away. It's like, well, God's God's leading his church. And so he's going to activate people you don't even know, or he's going to activate people from the four winds where you can't even see, um, and, and they're there somehow playing a role. And um Man, it was the body was very activated uh, in in really beautiful ways, and even layer upon layer. I mean, just remember the childcare. You know, anybody who was the most affected sort of had like twenty four seven childcare when they needed it. By the the, le- the lesser affected, you know, uh, the new couple that just moved there, they're like, I didn't really know Randy, but I can keep your kids, you know, because clearly you did know him, and you're on the floor, you know? Yeah. Um, or, yeah. There, or were the, these, there were these kind of layers of, of care that was really beautiful. Um, there was, it, it, there was some people that were providing care for those that were most affected for Randy's widow, Lisa, and, and for um, our brother, Tim, who actually found Randy. And, but those people providing that care needed care <laughs> because they mm-hmm. were giving. So that was really beautiful. And people finding like their, their place in that, in that, that care plan. And, um, yeah. Yeah. No, there, there was, so you mentioned Lisa. I mean, 
at the funeral and the, the funeral was watched by well over a thousand people, I think. Uh, but you know, multiple people that were there commented to me and I, I affirm this, but it was one of the more spirit anointed moments I've ever seen in my life of the grace that she received. Um, that, that might be the hope in some of this. It's just like, man, when the church is most tested, God is proving to be very present, you know, and very faithful, giving grace to match the occasion. And there's a lot of grace needed, you know. Um, and so I think Lisa's testified to that to the Soma family. She testified to that at the memorial service. Uh, I just think we could probably maybe even speak to that yeah. a little bit. I don't want to go too personal for her. I just know she's a, yeah. she likes to brag on Jesus in any chance she can get. And, and Jesus was very near and mm-hmm. beautiful radiating through her in ways that just were beyond any human explanation. Oh yeah. No, she's really good at bragging on Jesus and she continued to do that um, publicly and privately over the, the next year, um, we ended up, uh, Lisa invited my family to, they had kind of a, uh, an apartment in their, in their basement. And so, uh, my wife and I, we actually spent about six months uh, living with them and, and, uh, and yeah, she, she'd be, if she was on the podcast, she'd be the first to talk about the dark days and the like deep, <laughs> deep Saturdays. But, uh, Jesus continued to sustain her. I, you know, I talked to her a lot about, you know, something that you and I have been talking about for, I don't know, almost a decade about that non-anxious presence that, that Edwin Friedman, um, defined so well and probably every podcast has mentioned this year. But, uh, I talked to, to Lisa a lot about it's, it's not that non-anxious presence. It's not just, it can't just be this idea that you get and then you can like bring it to a difficult place. Um, it really is something that you must arrive at each day personally. And I saw Lisa creating space for that in her own life daily, like early in the morning, and then was able to bring that to her kids, um, was able to bring that to to her body. Many people, some of our staff, one of our key staff, would say she just she just kept taking her cues from, from Lisa this last year. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and like, like I'm saying, you, in order for Lisa to be able to give those cues, she had to be taking them from, from Jesus, this, uh, you know, attachment theory, what, what parents do for their kids when they, 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 sh- they shush them, you know, they calm them when they, they don't know how to self-soothe. Like that's, that's what Lisa was able to do this, this year is continue to go to the father and say, still me, like hold me till I, you know, take that deep breath <laughs> and then, uh, and then was able to give it beyond. So that's, that's powerful. It's crazy. Um, you know, if she had, if she had <laughs> melted or broken down, uh, I don't think anyone would have blamed her and yet, um, it's just beautiful. And, um, yeah, she kept leading me to take my cues from Jesus who really shepherded me, pastored me really well this last year. Yeah, no, that's, it's a, it's a paradox, but you know, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is a kingdom. And, and I don't, and I've talked to mega church guys that oversee hundreds of small groups, you know, and we talked to them about the ball curve of which groups are healthy and which ones aren't. And most will say, you know, the top 10, we've got about 10% of our groups that are just really dynamic biblical community look like acts, you know, 
right. everyone's healthy and sharing and loving as a good family and maybe on mission and all that. And then you've got 40 that 40% that are pretty average. And then, you know, maybe a 50% that are just struggling if they're gathering together at all or whatever. That's just right. an honest assessment. But what's true about the 10% that are particularly dynamic is usually that they've encountered something significant, like a crisis in their direct proximity, you know, like somebody in their group of 12 got cancer and they were on chemo and they couldn't keep their kids while they were like writhing in pain. And we just were like, if it's not our responsibility, whose is it? You know, like we have to be, we have to be the body here, you know, like we have to rise up. And so as you're, as you're saying that even about Lisa, that idea of there's something profound about our need and, uh, you know, that brings us into communion with Jesus if we go there, you know, um, if we go to him with it. And then now the church has a strength. They have a, a kind of resource and a beauty that is not, not the same when we are living comfortably, you know, in a, in a state of orientation without trials or tests of any kind. Uh, so that's, that's probably the big, and I want to transition a little bit to the stabilization phase and some of the things you're doing to lead out of crisis, but that's probably the big macro observation I've had on Soma Tacoma is just how remarkably strong the church uh, was or is even after this significant shaking. Uh, maybe maybe even talk about that as you guys entered into COVID. Yeah. I felt like y'all's disposition was like, bring it on. You yeah. Know? Like yeah. this is not, this yeah. is not anything like yeah. what we just walked through. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, absolutely. I, I can't remember Duke. Are you, are you a Lord of the Rings reader or not? I, I, a, I am a watcher. I have to, I have watcher. to tell you, I've never, okay. I've never read it. Yeah. Well, at the end of the, th- the third, like the final book, and I actually can't remember how much the movie goes into this. I know they had to shorten it, but I remember the first time I read the last book, um, I was, I was pretty young. I was like 13 or 14. And the, 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 the last book, the return of the King, it climaxes kind of like midway. And I remember as a little kid being like, what? I don't, and I, I really wasn't interested in the rest of the book because it was about the hobbits coming from the ultimate battle. You know, they defeat the enemy, they, they defeat Mordor, and they come back home. And um, what I didn't get as a 13 year old was this beautiful thing that happened. This, we have this, these four little hobbits who are these shy, <laughs> tiny, <laughs> tiny little people at the beginning of their story. Then they encounter Mordor. And that last piece is really intentional. They go back into normal life and actually like their city is in trouble. And, but they just kind of have this calm, smiling, like, like, like little, almost a little smirk on their faces. Like they're winking at each other. Like, this is going to be okay. <laughs> like <laughs> we're going to be fine. And, um, and, and they have this, this, uh, this, I mean, I would, you know, uh, and, and for, they have a spiritual authority is what I would say. It's like this authority. <laughs> and so, yeah, I remember, I do remember the Sunday we were working through Phil- Philippians and, and, um, and I had prepared uh, like a message that was basically like, hey, look at what God's doing in our hearts and in our body. And like my call was like, let's not, as the crisis <laughs> subsides, let's not like lose that. <laughs> and, and you know, just like kind of calling people to that. And then that was like March 12th or 13th when everything broke loose. I was like, oh, like we're not going to, 
we're not going to lose the crisis. And we kind of had a little bit, I don't want to say smirk because that would really downplay the pandemic, but just saying we, we had already, we had already um, been unified through, through tragedy. Um, Crisis Mm -hmm. really does smoke out character. Um, Mm -hmm. It, um, uh, you know, I'll say this after a year and a half, the, the crisis um, crisis makes the committed more committed and the nominal mm-hmm. disappear. Like no one, mm-hmm. no one stays on the fence after crisis. You know, um, there's, there is that initial adrenaline phase, right? Um, but, but eventually it's going to be just really clear, like, like who's, who's still in this. And um, yeah. And I, I, I I'll, I'll tell you, I was, I was consulting with like a church, a larger church in the East coast, they would have around 1500 people or so had around 80 groups, um, before the pandemic. And, um, you know, someone to come smaller church around 200 people or so. And we had, we have 10, we had 10 or 11, 12 missional communities and they went from 80 to like eight within a matter of weeks. And we did hmm. not lose any of our missional communities when the pandemic hmm. happened. We did, we, you know, we, we helped one kind of close a chapter, but for, for, for good reasons, you know, um, and strengthen some other ones. So, so, um, yeah, that, that was what the transition was like. Uh, I, I will say that when you, when you shot me an email said, Hey, can, can you record a podcast on, on how to lead post crisis? I, I kind of laughed and I told one of my staff, I was like, first of all, which crisis and what do you mean by, what do you mean by post? <laughs> because <laughs> I definitely still feel like, um, like yeah, it's just been one continued evolving, evolving crisis. Yeah. Um, that, it, it is a bit of a misnomer. It's, it's uh yeah, through crisis yeah, in crisis yeah, and, yeah. and by no means are we attempting to make the pandemic sound trite at all yeah uh, you know it's just yeah tacoma had encountered one of the darkest scenarios imaginable and so it did seem yeah. lesser uh after after that so well let's let's transition just a little bit i'd love to talk about the stabilization our stabilization phase mm-hmm. what does it look like to rebuild proactively uh when things have been shaken so significantly maybe maybe talk about yeah the yeah. scope sequence of the rebuild some of the things that became important for you guys to do at a leadership level uh in the aftermath yeah I'd, um i do think that the one thing that uh, crisis allows for is just really to pe- people uh, people are okay and actually eager for you to really define reality and just name what's really happening um, and even what was happening before. Um, and that's a, that's the job of the, the leader is to describe what's going on. Um, I think that post crisis or whatever we want to call it, like in in that crisis transition, there is an opportunity to make significant shifts that probably potentially even needed to happen before. Um, and I remember talking to, uh, to one of our SOMA leaders um, about how the fact that he inherited a church um, that didn't have m- like membership in place. And he believes mm-hmm. that, you know, biblical, like just um, the church membership is really helpful, but he doesn't know if... <laughs> if they could ever make that transition. Um, and I, I kind of, I just nudged him. I said, well, I, I do think the pandemic is going to offer some of those, um, 
like that, that opportunity. So for us specifically, we did have a lot of like just rebuilding that we needed to do. And actually membership was, was one of them just starting with like a, a provisional membership, like, okay, who, who feels like they're a part of this church family? And then we walked people through a more kind of proactive, um, what does it look like to be in family partnership with Soma Tacoma? Um, but we had to even go more ground level. We, we had to work on, on, um, getting key leaders in place. And so Jeff, uh, Vanderstelt, um, and I, we, we walked through, um, uh, a group of initially about 15, uh, people, um, through an elder process. And that was, was really good. Um, almost a year meeting every single Tuesday morning, Jeff for every other mm-hmm. week and I'd be on the off weeks and built a really cohesive, really unified, really clear elder team. Um, uh, we, we, again, I kind of already mentioned this, but we gave a lot of space. I didn't mention it in this way, but we just gave a lot of space for our leaders, more frequent kind of checkpoints with our missional community leaders, um, created, uh, yeah, there was some training, but a lot of it was kind of like like check-ins. Um, mm-hmm. Again, we, with our elders and I would say our missional community leaders in a year when there are so many things to be disunified dis- about, whether it's uh, uh, just the racial tensions and um, pandemic and then political pandemic, we experienced incredible amount of unity. Yeah, we had some outliers, that did have some questions, but in terms of leadership, we had, we had a lot of, a lot of unity. Um, yeah, sorry. So I like, think that's, that's, yeah, that's kind of a byproduct of having, you know, significant crises or trauma is that a lot of the petty stuff, like, should we wear a mask or not wear a mask becomes pretty small, you know, not to say it's petty. I think master important. I'm saying like the churches that are fighting over micro, topics, you know, yeah. it's like, man, that, that's just, man, that doesn't seem like that matters anymore. Yeah. Know? Yeah. I'm, just, I'm smiling. Cause we definitely still had that, but, um, okay. but, but, but it wasn't, it wasn't like in a, in a crisis, like leadership level. Like we had, um, you know, somewhere around 40 missional community leaders and that was not a, a significant topic that they were working through. We were more working through sure. how to help the people <laughs> that maybe are asking those questions. So that's why I am smiling. But, um, sure. but in terms of unity, yeah, and, and and leadership, it was. You're right. Crises just squeeze the squeezes the pettiness out of you. <laughs> yeah, that's huge. Yeah, well, maybe talk about the staff. So you come into a staff team that had been leveled, and I know. By God's grace, the church raised up and gave them like six weeks off uh, to just kind of grieve and and reorient a bit. Just and all that went on. Uh, what it looked like for you is you came in and you were the guy that was really tasked with uh, initially for the six months. You didn't know that you would come and stay permanently, but you were the guy to lead it in the short term. Uh, what it looked like to redefine reality for the staff level and that maybe even that leadership core of forty. Yeah, uh, that was. So yeah, I think it was even more than six weeks. It was like just um, yeah, they might have been six weeks or eight weeks of completely they were they were off. But then coming back in, it's not like it was okay. Grieving period's over. It was it completely redefined like even just productivity for us. Like uh, being together as a staff, there was a lot of again just where where are you today? That for me as you know Enneagram like three eight was was just 
it, it was a learning curve. Like it, the most productive thing I can do today is to help the staff figure out how they're doing. <laughs> and, uh, mm-hmm. and even continuing a lot of what we would do is we'd, we'd go back and we'd actually just have to revisit our story. Um, not just the story of the last, you know, months, but the story of the years, uh, leading up to it and, and looking at some of our, you know, family culture, which every, every church has to do, but especially in the wake of crisis, like it's, um, it was, it was really important. And so, uh, yeah. And we, I, we created space, you know, off, I, I noticed there's like a super thin line in those waves of grief between like crying and laughing, and so we created a lot of space for even just like fun and um, um, be, yeah, um, fun. And I would say just noticing beauty. Uh, mm-hmm. Art uh, was important. We, we actually right now are, are we kind of challenged our, our musicians to um, uh, kind of capture some of what we're calling the, the meanwhile stories of the last year and a half. And, mm-hmm. and I think, that's been a part of Soma Tacoma's history, just recording, um, recording music to the story that God's, God's writing. Uh, but we've usually recording kind of a soundtrack to like the story of God. If you're familiar with like the two story albums that came out of Soma Tacoma. And, uh, I remember early on as Jesus was still caring for me, we were about to walk through the story of Joseph and, you know, everything goes bad. Disorientation happens for Joseph. And the last verse of, I think it's Genesis 37 begins with the word meanwhile. And it's like, meanwhile, (laughs) meanwhile, Joseph is being sold to, you know, one of the most powerful people in, in Egypt. And again, it's not, it's not to shortcut to like the answer, but it is to recognize, it is to notice what God is doing in the meanwhile. So that was a lot of, of our, our staff rebuilding. Um, I like that. Yeah. I like the meanwhile story, which is to say we're, we're not going to choose to interpret every single thing now through a darkened lens when it's actually good or beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> we're, going to tell, we're going to tell the truth about the broken thing that is so painful, and we're going to tell the truth about the good and the faithfulness of God. That's, that's, that's such awesome. a, uh, uh, that's the place you have to be, and it's so hard to stay there. And what I mean by that is you can either stay, yeah, in the broken, dark lens, or you can become like hyper-vigilant in your like looking for God's sovereignty when it's really not your place. Like that's not where we're at right now. We're in the meanwhile. We're not, we're not there. So I love that. As you said it, I'm thinking of the Frederick Beekner quote. This is the world, you know, beautiful and terrible things will happen. Do not be afraid. You know, and it's just like, how can we create a, uh, an honest, community that's able to with equal honesty and clarity talk about the beautiful and terrible things and not not overemphasize one or the other because we do I, I don't know about you but I've been in some circles where authenticity leans really dark like if you're Pollyanna you're saying anything positive you're probably naive and this <laughs> could even happen in the Pacific Northwest like in Portland the authenticity was a little bit like if you're authentic, you'll be angsty, yep. you know, yep. uh, and you won't uh, actually appreciate beauty or be able to say anything positive. 
Uh, and that's just not the truth. That's not the truth about the grace that is true in the world. It's not certainly not true in the church with the kingdom breaking in and all sorts of redemptive things happening and, and provision in all the ways we've already talked about. A lot of things we haven't talked about with Tacoma. Uh, there were tons of evidences of grace and tons of devastation. And they were side by side in such stark detail that I love, Dawson, the way you're describing leading people with like, man, we're not going to, skate you into a Pollyanna, uh, easy Bible verse over the top of tragedy kind of thing. We're going to name it, experience it, grieve it deeply, and we're going to celebrate and and honor and worship and praise Jesus deeply for all the good. You know, it's like, it's both. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes that, that, that both, that other piece of like, um, looking at Jesus's plans, it's just, it's like just engaging in a liturgy together. It's like, I honestly do not feel any Pollyanna stuff right now, but I am going to sing this hymn. And so we've, I might, uh, yeah, in my notes, I was going to talk about this at some point, but just, we've just learned a lot about um, our need to just have healthy for form, uh, forming practices personally and communally um, because crisis just reveals like where you're at. And sometimes I guess what I was saying is like in the middle of the crisis, just engaging in those and letting those things shape you that maybe you're not even fully believing is good. It's a good thing to do. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. As we kind of wrap up here, any other principles? I mean, you mentioned that one, kind of the self-care, the rhythms of, you know, you had to play it really honest. So, you know, yeah, I think almost like an athlete. It's like, man, if you're training for peak performance, say the Olympics, like you got to get your sleep, you got to yeah. drink water, you've got to recharge, you've got to do everything by the book because you know the margin is so thin. Yeah. <laughs> uh, similarly, in crisis, um, you don't, you can't play fast and loose with the spiritual disciplines. You can't play fast and loose with, you know, the, the self care. But what what other principles maybe <laughs> yeah. as we close would you would you emphasize? Maybe with the self care, just to add. To add on to that, I think um, uh, just for me personally, like slower prayer, um, uh, more le- like like less thinking about God in crisis and more thinking with God about the crisis is really important. Um, and, and and so for yeah, that just front loading self care has been like super important and self-care just sounds, you know what I mean by that? Like allowing Jesus to care for you, front loading that care. Um, I think another thing, man, just remembering that, uh, underneath with, you know, we already mentioned all of the, the triggers, all the things going on for me, just recognizing that underneath all of that angst, kind of what you're talking about, the anger is people like hurting are hurting people. And mm-hmm. I remember we, uh, I don't remember, like, it's not like this happened a long time ago. We, we met, I met with one, one guy, one family that just was really struggling with a lot of, of, um, you know, all, the stuff that every church is struggling with right now, different stuff around how we were communicating about race or pandemic stuff. And eventually they did, they did decide that they were going to leave. And I was shocked though, at the end, when the thing that he said was the primary reason was that they didn't feel cared for. And I was shocked because I think I met with this person more than 
maybe anyone else, like not just me, our our elder team, we were kind of, he probably had eight or nine meetings with elders. And I thought about my daughter, my oldest daughter, uh, Vivian, who um, she just can get really, you know, she's, you know, typical oldest child kind of type A, like loves to make her little calendars at the beginning of the day and kind of has an agenda. And then there's this one day where just, she just was feeling angst around everything. She's really, you know, saying this is wrong and this is wrong. And I finally did, you know, that thing that as dads, we often forget to do. I kind of like, wait a second. And I stopped and I grabbed her and I put her on my knee and I said, Hey, like, how are you doing right now? Like, how are you, how are you doing? And she just kind of melted. And I had been trying to help her navigate like all these things that she was feeling frustrated about. But, um, I think this guy, like, like it's sometimes it's just, just not, not forgetting to ask that question. Like, how are you doing? Learning that anger is a, a cover emotion often for like fear and sadness and hurt. And, and, and there's so much going on where there's so much noise that we're, we're all like noise refugees right now. And just to like help people slow down and process their emotions. I'm shocked. It's not even like I plan it, but we'll, I'll get into a, a meeting with, with someone. It can be a care meeting, it can be something in five or seven minutes into it. I'm like, wait a second. I just need to stop and say, Hey, how are you feeling right now? And like start the meeting with how are you feeling? And, um, so that's just remembering, remembering that people are really processing this year um, emotionally. Yeah. Yeah. That's so huge. Not to react. Cause in that case with that guy, if you had sort of given him the laundry list of how many meetings he got and all the ways, and you had been defensive, yeah. you know, yeah. um, then that would have helped him. It would have helped you. It probably wouldn't have changed anything about the outcome, but to, to not react, to let him have feelings about his life to let him even vent. I mean, I think about, yeah, teenagers, all kids of all ages will blame parents for things. And sometimes it's legitimate. And sometimes it's just, you're the safest person to, yeah, to blame. And it's like, man, let them, let them vent, create space for people to say things that they don't fully mean or agree with, or that are even purely logical or supported by data or anything. It's like, man, it's not about that right now. Um, you know, try to see the person through the words, you know, and just like, what is their heart saying? Oh, their words are maybe accurate to some extent, maybe not, but what do they need? What are they, what's their heart crying for just to talk, attending to that versus like getting into an argument about how many times the elders met with them or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so yeah. I, lo- I love that. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that's really huge. Well, Dawson, anything else as we close and I'll wrap it up um, that, yeah. you think our listeners would benefit from oh there's there's a yeah there's there's a lot more i i think the, maybe the the last thing i would just mention is where i'm at now is i'm i'm both pleading with god for these crises to come to a close and then at the same time i'm just recognizing how much um how much deep formational work has been done and often how much I've missed it. Like there's been months where I just like have shut down, been hard, you know? Um, and so my first prayer is please let like deliver us from exile. Right. <laughs> and then my, my second prayer is increasingly like, like help me enjoy Jesus in the middle of it. And, uh, um, we, uh, I went with, uh, a few other Soma leaders, um, Brad Watson, CJ, um, uh, Bergman and Kevin Platt to, 
to a cabin down in California. And um, we we just asked the question, which I think actually you and maybe Chuck Kishwin helped us with this, but we just asked the question, can God prepare a table in the wilderness, which is a quote from Psalm 78, right? And uh, and that, that question, I think just, for me is that's the opportunity, you know, that was kind of asked, mm-hmm. asked and angst <laughs> I think that in Psalm 78, it's, I mean, the, the Israelites were like, can he, of course he can't like we're in the wilderness, but recognizing each day, like the invitation, um, Psalm 23 reality where the first half you're moving from through the valley of the shadow of death. And suddenly it transitions to saying you prepare a feast table before me right so that's that's um that's where i'm at is like jesus help me enjoy you um in ways i only can before this kind of subsides you know uh so that's where i'm at personally yeah yeah that is so good and that that really is the road at a christian maturity and and paul i think best i can tell paul's scorecard for christian maturity is mature faith hope and love and we're we're in a season where i feel we're being tested on mature hope you know what do we do with disappointment with setback with curveballs with tests with just so much not being the way we'd want uh and and i love love what you're saying about the the table in the wilderness and the communion with god fellowship of suffering uh, just the, honestly, the relationality of that, it, <laughs> and the, the metaphor itself of, of eating with others in a in a place of uh, of devastation, uh, enjoying community with God and others. So, yeah, as, as we close, audience, I just uh, well, first I want to thank you, Dawson. Uh, for for sharing insights and and wisdom and things that God's formed in you through what's been a you know tragic tragic test um, and and then for our audience I just want to encourage you uh, of course you have different crises uh, COVID has been a different experience for each leader in each church in some ways uh, some things have been common I just want to pray for you. Uh, that you you live with hope uh, in the same way that Dawson is clinging to Jesus uh, and, and so much Tacoma has clinged to Jesus through, uh, through testing that, that there is uh, there's grace and there is uh, a sufficient God in relationship with us in the desert and that there are good days coming uh, and yet we can we can live in uh, in the present with honesty and without uh, pretending or or trying to um, you know cope in unhealthy ways and so um, yeah thank you so much Dawson I appreciate you brother appreciate your time and uh, yeah just know that this will be an encouragement uh, to, to our audience in the same way that it has been for me thanks Duke it's good to be with you today's podcast was edited and produced by Justin Hugus Saturate is committed to gospel saturation in North America and beyond until every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus in word and deed. This podcast is an ongoing conversation with disciples and leaders discussing how Jesus is better, his church is more, and his mission is every day. Learn more and activate your Saturate membership at saturatetheworld.com.